0: need a website why not do it yourself with wix.com no matter what business you're in wix.com has something for you used by more than 77 million people worldwide wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today you need to get the word out about your business and it all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer made customizable templates to choose from the drag and drop editor there's no coding needed you don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful you can do it yourself with wix.com Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy, too busy. Too busy worrying about your budget, your scheduling appointments, or to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your own website today. The result will be stunning. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. April 6th. Do you know what today is? Have you marked your DVR? Are you going to be in your TV at 10 p.m. Eastern Pacific, preferably on CNBC? Because today is the day, my friends, my CNBC show, Follow the Leader premieres tonight. You do not want to miss it. This is an unprecedented kind of show where we get this unbelievable access. We get to go behind the scenes, see how some of the top minds in business work, think, relate, make decisions, fire people, hire people. I mean, for me, it was like I was at a concert because for me, entrepreneurs are my rock stars. You know, I was backstage at Duran Duran. I was backstage at New Kids on the Block because I loved them when I was a kid. Okay, don't judge me. I'm gonna be actually on Twitter during the show from 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, tweeting, live tweeting, answering your questions, giving you some behind the scenes, some sidebars about what was going on in the episode. And so it should be a lot of fun. Join me there. Looking forward to seeing you. I'm sure you're tired of hearing me talk about it. So I'm just going to stop here and just say, please tune in. And if you can't watch it tonight, DVR it. Watch it later and let's talk about it. Let me know what you think. I mean, I'm not doing this to just do this in a bubble, right? I want your feedback so we can make the next, hopefully next season even better. So... It's also a special day because I have one of Wall Street's female trailblazers on the show today. I welcome Cynthia DiBartolo. She's the founder of Tigris Financial Partners. She has an incredible story. You will not believe what she has to say about her professional and personal challenges and triumphs. Cynthia has worked for some of the biggest names on Wall Street, from Bear Stearns to Merrill Lynch, Smith Barney, Citibank. She also has a law degree from Villa. Now, in 2009, while working for Citibank, Cynthia was diagnosed with head and neck cancer, and after undergoing extensive surgery, she was left unable to eat or speak. So how is it that now, today just seven years later, she is at the helm of her career once again, even higher than where she was before, running Tigris Financial Partners. She calls it Tigris because it means strong female. Of course, her firm is a woman-owned and operated service that provides research, corporate and executive services, asset management, sales and trading, wealth management, investment banking services. She also serves as the chair of the Greater New York Chamber of Commerce. And listening to this interview might just change your life. I'm going to go there and say this might change your life. In our conversation with Cynthia, we learn about how she climbed the Wall Street ladder in the 1980s when the so-called glass ceiling was actually a really thick brick ceiling. We talk about her devastating personal complication in 2009, how she found the strength to bounce back even higher, and why today she describes herself, her approach to money, as a conscious capitalist. What does that mean? Here is Cynthia DiBartolo. Cynthia DiBartolo, welcome to So Money. I have been wanting to speak with you for some time now, and I'm I'm so honored to have you join us on the show.
1: Well, thank you so much, Vernush. It's my pleasure. I, I think that your uh, this type of platform is so empowering and inspiring to the listeners.
0: Well, I have to say many of our listeners are Women who are very aspirational, um, whether they're working from home, working in the corporate environment, entrepreneurial, stay at home moms. And of course we have a lot of lo- lovely men who join on the, sh- on the, on the podcast every day. But I would love to first have you share with the audience your. Uh, I guess your journey in the world of finance you know you've been working in the financial field for decades and you've seen it all you've experienced it all the good the bad and if you had to summarize your professional experience working in the world of finance as a female how would you how would you characterize it?
1: One word challenging mm. i I came up uh, through the financial world. In the '80s, in the early '80s, and it was extremely difficult for women back then. Uh, the culture of the street was different. The level of respect there was a lack of sensitivity to women. Um, it was a a very very different place uh, to try to to break into, and it took took a thick skin and tremendous amount of tenacity for a woman to prevail.
0: I remember reading an article where um you recalled asking one of your bosses back in the 80s, you know, why did you hire me? And he said something like, Well, you're easy on the eyes. <laughs> As opposed to you're like this accomplished, experienced, educated candidate, and we wanted to bring you on the team. It was the most derogatory response he could have given, or one of the most derogatory.
1: Uh, I, I I was so disappointed and offended. I thought he was going to say, I hired you because of your competitive drive. I had been a congressional nominee to West Point, a tremendous achievement for a woman back in the 80s. I had won a number of awards. I thought he'd pick any one of those. But to tell me I'm easy on the eye was so offensive that all I could picture across my forehead were the words depreciating assets. Because I knew, well, if that's how he hired me, I am not always going to be so easy on the eye in 10, 20, 30 years. So I need to take control of the situation and earn the respect of the folks on Wall Street. How did British, you do I didn't that? know what Wall Street was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Well, I, I didn't know what it was at all. Uh, when I first went, I didn't know if it was an actual street. It is, or culture, (laughs) and I got
0: there and found it was a cult. So uh, (laughs) that required a lot of strategic maneuvering on my part. Well, can we? Can you share some of that strategic maneuvering? How did you, like you said, go and earn the respect that you deserved? today, you have your own company and you employ women and that's obviously your way of addressing the situation. Unfortunately, things haven't changed that much since the 80s, at least not enough where women feel completely at peace and respected in the world of finance. But back in the 80s and 90s, how did you pick yourself up from all that?
1: You know, it it wasn't easy. I saw a lot of women just uh, driven out by the lack of respect, the the kind of the, there wasn't a glass ceiling back back then. It was a brick ceiling, and they just saw they saw nothing beyond what was in front of them. I I really felt that I had a my intellectual capital uh, was if I could get people to see that and value that, I would be able to propel myself through uh, Wall Street. And I think the first. That became obvious to me was, you know, federal securities regulations. It was in the 80s. People were just starting to talk about it. So, why not go back and get my law degree with that specialty? And that would thrust me into a different category. And with that degree, I would be armed to really uh, present myself uh, in a very different platform. And people would be forced to respect the knowledge base at that point.
0: That's so brilliant. And that's still applicable today. Basically, the advice is go where you see momentum, where nobody maybe is capitalizing on that. What you did was you were paying attention to what was happening in the world around you. And you were like, I'm going to go and be the expert in that. So no matter what my gender, my color, my age, if I have that expertise, I'm going to be employed.
1: It was clear to me early on that financial services didn't suffer from a deficit of talent among women. What they suffered from was a deficit of opportunity. And I needed to figure out where that opportunity lied and try to just navigate myself into that, even if it was just a narrow uh, space
0: at the time. Why did you want to start Tigris Financial Partners? What was the impetus for that?
1: I, truthfully, did not have a burning desire to ever stop my own firm. I always thought my career, uh, would, uh, continue through the bold brackets and I would retire at a very late age, well into my 60s and like the early 70s, from um, a bold bracket firm. But in 2009, um, I faced some very mm-hmm. devastating news mm-hmm. that affected both my personal and professional life. Yeah, I was the consummate, uh, professional woman that probably put a lot of things before my own personal health. And if I can get any message out to your listening audiences, put your health first, uh, always because without that you have nothing. But I spent a lot of time focusing on how to do damage control in a, in a terrible market for the company I was working with. Uh, by the time I actually dealt with a personal issue that I wasn't feeling well, um, I had been diagnosed with uh, advanced squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck. It was a catastrophic diagnosis in that my primary site of cancer was my tongue and within 30 weeks of my diagnosis, I was going to face the un- believable challenge of having to go through a radical surgery to remove a significant portion of my tongue, a neck dissection, as well as a tracheotomy. I went through those uh, surgeries, but I was left very, very disabled, incapacitated. Uh, today, I speak to you and your viewing, uh, your listening audience are actually hearing me speaking with a reconstructed tongue. It took me almost two years to learn to speak. It was an arduous, arduous process. It was a combination of skilled surgeons, a credible speech pathologist, and the relentless encouragement of my family and my fiancé to get me to speak. The speech limitation I had prevented me from going back to what I loved to do in corporate America. And I had to think long and hard about what was going to be next. And I wrote on a board to my father because my communication method at that time was largely to a board. I wrote, what will I do with myself? And he just looked at me without blinking and said, those doctors operated on your tongue, not your brain. Figure it out. And I started to read Dodd-Frank, you know, when you don't, when you can't speak, you have a lot of time to read. I think there's only three people that have read Dodd-Frank, Dodd-Frank or myself, from cover <laughs> to cover. And I found something in there about um, language regarding using women and minority firms to the most extent possible. And a light went on in my head that I could take all my years and. Education and experience on Wall Street, and my tenacity, and go and form my own woman owned and operated broker dealer. And with that in mind, I approached FINRA, uh, which is a regulatory agency, to receive a license for a woman owned and operated broker dealer. And we are proud to say we're from it's very sensitive to people with disabilities.
0: I love how you, I read a lot about your story and there was one takeaway that I will never forget, which was that, you know, for everyone out there who experiences a personal tragedy like that, and you know, you can be a victim. There's nothing wrong with that. That's part of the process sometimes, but don't be a volunteer is what you say. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, absolutely, Finish.
1: At some point in our lives, everyone is going to be a victim of something, right? It could be a small issue and it could be a fairly catastrophic one. Uh The scale of that and the pendulum will swing. And it's okay to accepting a victim, but the task we all have to embrace is that we need to take that particular status and turn that challenge into our opportunity. It is easy for, for people to become a victim and perpetuate the victim status. I have tremendous issues with support groups that do not take people to the level of empowering themselves, but allow them to waddle in the victim mode because that's not going to help an individual propel their life forward. That is not going to help you regain the dignity that you once had, nor is it going to allow you to embrace and enjoy the quality of life that you deserve.
0: Well said. How long did it take you, Cynthia, to, from the moment that you were recovering from your surgery and you had this, you read Dodd-Frank and you're realizing, oh my gosh, here's this opportunity. Of course, you had to rebuild your personal life, your personal capabilities, you have to learn how to speak again. Um, how long did it take for that and then to, to launch Tigris? I mean, can you take me through that timeline a little bit? I'm sure you were very impatient. I would be. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, in 2009, uh, I had the surgery. It was in the spring of 2009. I. Um, I I spent several several months extremely incapacitated going from a respirator to really just uh, learning some basic functionalities of swallowing and then going on being able to manipulate the reconstruction of my tongue. My tongue has been reconstructed from my arm and in the beginning, it was difficult to even say the word water. Um, My family was relentless in having me learn to speak. My fiancé used to joke before he was my fiancé at the time, he was my boyfriend, and he said, baby, if you learn to say just two words, ring and bling, I will buy you a ring. So I have a lot of encouragement from the sidelines, but I also, the reality check of what would come from a professional standpoint was glaring. Colleagues of mine that worked with me for a decade said, you know, Cynthia, Wall Street's hard enough for a woman. It may be impossible for a disabled woman. And I started to put my ducks in a row and think, okay, how do I get from where I am today to where I want to be? I could actually see where I wanted to be. The only my challenge was how do I create the roadmap to get there? So uh, you know, just looking at what financial services had to offer in terms of what you call a minority space made sense to me. There is a high demand for minority-owned broker-dealers, and those the definition of that just includes women, African-American-owned firms, disabled vet firms, Hispanic-owned firms. And I saw the demand for minority-owned firms and then decided, okay, do I want to be the same as any other minority-owned firm? Why don't I do something disruptive in the financial services space? And I did a gap analysis and saw that what most of those firms were missing was an organic research product that had tremendous credibility to it. So I thought, well, that's going to be my starting point. If I'm going to build something, I'm going to build something that's disruptive, that's going to be able to take market share in a very different way. So the overall from this time, 2009, to the time I got the license from FINRA, was October of 2011.
0: And I'm sure along the way, maybe not to your face, but you felt it, right? People were maybe looking at the whole process thinking, how is she going to do this (laughs) Uh I mean, I'm not only only Uh because all entrepreneurs face um, scrutiny. So how did you overcome that? What was your approach to to any naysayers? Uh,
1: It was my, I was committed to what I could see in front of me. I'm a person that believes that hope is the most, uh, that hope itself is the most incredible force in the world. And if I could believe that and translate that to other people, they could see my vision. Here's here's an example. When I went to get my clearing arrangement, and when you're a broker dealer, you need a clearing arrangement, I was sitting with clearing firm, and they asked me, you know, how many accounts I had. And I held up my hand because I didn't speak well, and he thought I meant 3,000, and I was like shaking my head, no, he's like three hundred. I'm like, no, and it goes zero, and I'm like, I shook my head, yes, and he couldn't understand. Uh, this is one of the directors at the clinic, who couldn't understand why I would take this on, and he said to me, why would you ever want to build a firm, especially in a bad market? Well, I conveyed my story to him about what had happened to me with his head and neck cancer and how I was determined to move forward. He just looked at me and said, after hearing that, I'm committed to doing this for you. I want to see you be successful. When I went to hire my head of research, who's my chief investment officer now, he looked at me and he said, yeah, I don't want to be part of a startup. I've been part of startups for three years and I have startup fatigue. Those were his exact words. And then he also asked me why I was doing this. And after he heard me, he said, well, now I'm so embarrassed. How could I tell you I wouldn't want to be part of this journey? And he said, Cynthia, you know what you get with startup fatigue? And I, I had no idea. He goes, startup experience. He said, count me on amazing so, and from yeah. and
0: from a man <laughs> no less i love that <laughs> My So Money team's recently become a fan of a company called Realty Shares that's disrupting the real estate finance industry with their crowdfunding platform. Here's some investment advice brought to you by our April sponsor, RealtyShares.com. Haley from New York writes, How do I invest in real estate in California? Well, Haley, one easy way to invest in any one of the 50 states is through a real estate crowdfunding website. There are a few, but RealtyShares.com has the lowest investment minimums. RealtyShares allows accredited investors to to invest as little as $5,000 per transaction in residential and commercial real estate projects across the U.S. What's great about Realty Shares is that all of the real estate deals are sourced and vetted by experienced investment professionals. Thousands of investors are using the platform to browse through deals and invest in minutes. Of course, keep in mind that all investments are risky and may lose value. Past performance is not indicative of future results. For this month only, when you sign up at RealtyShares.com slash SoMoney and link a bank Account, the company will transfer fifty dollars into your linked bank account. Visit RealtyShares dot com slash so money to begin today. What's your favorite part of running your own company? Oh, I think it is um,
1: helping others achieve their maximum potential. That I could be a resource and a platform for people uh a talented individuals to see their own success maximized
0: it- That's a tremendous uh, reward for me. Cynthia, I have to now ask you some financial questions, right? Because you have had such a perspective that I don't think any of my female guests at least have had the the experience on Wall Street. Well, perhaps Sally Krawcheck. (laughs) You and Sally Krawcheck. (laughs) She's terrific. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah, she's lovely. And, you know, she's also starting a new company this year. Um, It's basically a female-focused Auto investment platform. So, um, looking Correct. forward Correct. to that. I'll be following both for yeah, you closely. Yeah, it's called Lvest. So now, yeah. what would you say is your personal financial philosophy? How you like to kind of approach your own money, your own kind of money mantra, if you have one.
1: Mm-hmm. I I call myself a conscious capitalist. A conscious. Um, I, what was that? A conscious. conscious Conscious Capitalist. Conscious
0: Capitalist. Mm
1: -hmm. I, I look at money as a way to help make people and places better than they are. I have, since I'm a young girl, I've always tried to leave people in a better situation than I found them. And you can do that with money. You need money to, in order to advance social good for people. Um, having having been passionate about a social cause or an issue is tremendous, but without resources and without money, it's really really hard to get widespread attention on that and to be able to see quantifiable
0: results. Was there ever a time in your life where you wanted to do something and you didn't have the money?
1: Oh, sure. Sure, um you know i think i i I find it hard to believe uh that most people haven't been faced with that. Uh, I think access to capital is one of the biggest challenges uh people face today um on on so many levels, but I know that when I wanted to start this firm, I didn't have access to capital. I had to figure out how to do it myself, how to make the sacrifices in my personal life, how to stream my personal life down to really minimize um, my, my life and really say, okay, do, these are luxuries I don't need and I can cut them out and I'm going to make those sacrifices. I've had to make the sacrifice in building my own business. I, I don't take the paycheck from my own business. So that I can continue to reinvest in the business, in the people, in the, um, in the platform itself.
0: What would you say is something I want to learn more about growing up. I love that your father gave you such great advice, right? I can only imagine the environment you grew up in and you grew up here, I think here in New York, right? Staten Island. And yes. Mm-hmm. So what was that like? And, and specifically, what was a great financial memory that you had growing up as a kid? What was your money exposure growing up as a child in, in New York City?
1: You know, I was able to see very uh, huge gaps of, of what wealth meant and not having wealth. Because I lived in the in the suburbs of New York, I grew up in a very comfortable situation, but I was in and out of the city very early on as a child um We would go down to the Bowery because my dad uh and my mom had relatives that didn't live far from there, and I would see such poverty um in that area that that vision of Homeless people at an early on early age. That I saw it was really frightening to me. It was something I couldn't understand how they got there, what happened in their lives, and the, as a child, the pain I felt seeing it, just feeling so helpless for them, and. Early on, that cultivated my way of thinking that I really don't want to leave people in a situation like that. I want to be able to help them I want to help I want to be able to be in a situation where I can be instrumental in giving people their dignity and helping them understand their self worth because sometimes it's all it takes is just someone to step back and help somebody. You get from point A to point B. And it's amazing if you get them to point B, what they can do from there.
0: I have to ask you, Cynthia, do you believe that in life things happen for a reason? I mean, some people just don't. Some people just think, you know, good or bad, life happens just because. But do you feel that you were meant to go through the experiences that you went through? Because I mean, if this had happened to anybody else, I'm not sure they would have had the same outcome. You have a resilience that mm-hmm. is very specific and true to you. And so do you feel that in some ways you were handed this life on purpose? Absolutely. I
1: think that um, my this, this, my path was charged out a long, long time ago. Um, I, I have been a resilient person. I've been a resilient child. Just, I can remember an incident. I probably was no more than eight years old and I, you know, wanted to to go into the Sunday swimming competition at our local club. And I ran and signed up for the competition and it was backstroke of all things. And I get on the block and the gun goes off and I'm floundering around. I joined to sign up for the competition, but forgot I don't know how to swim. And I damn near drowned myself <laughs> trying to get off the pool. And, you know, Everybody was out of the pool. All the other kids were done and had made it to the other side and I still continue to get across that pool. And I wouldn't give up till I made it to the other side. And that that resiliency has been with me since I'm a child and it has carried me so through some of my darkest times. Um, there's no question that I have had a path that's challenged. And I've taken those challenges and figured out how to make them into opportunities. I've also taken that path and found a way not to be resentful of what has happened to me. i rather be grateful for what I have. And that, that in and of itself creates a very different philosophical approach. Mm-hmm. I've come to say resilient people don't bounce back. We bounce back higher. And there's a big difference between the two. Hmm.
0: Well, how did you ever bounce back from a time that you would call your greatest financial failure? Let's talk about failure a little bit. We mm-hmm. talk about this with a lot of our guests. Was there a time in your life that you would say was a period of financial failure or an experience that was regrettable or disappointing financially?
1: Uh- I would absolutely go back to a point in time where you know I went through a divorce as a young woman um at the same time I was quite quite sick um, It made earning a living during that time in the early in my twenties uh in my field as a lawyer difficult just because I wasn't well um and couldn't put the hours in that I needed. I can remember not wondering how I was going to pay this bill and pay that bill and having to walk pretty far to, uh, to do things because I didn't have the excess resources to put towards a cab. And I am the type of person, I would never ask people for help. I wouldn't go back to my dad and ask for help. I was just going to figure it out. But, you know, today I'm grateful I had that because... It, it toughened me up, you know, it it, it did that it, it's at a very pivotal point in my life. And, you know, when you've gone through those financial challenges, when you have to figure out, well, do I pay this bill that month? or How do I one this here? It, it, it really helps change your attitude mm-hmm. later on because... I'm very empathetic to people today. I'm empathetic to people that work for me and their personal challenges. I, I've i taken that today on the front lines of fighting for increase for in minimum wage simply because, you know, as I look around me in, in New York, it's impossible for people to live here, live a, a life of, of inequality on minimum wage. And I know what the sacrifices were for me. You know, you're talking 30 years ago, I can only imagine people trying to exist today on such limited
0: resources and the effect that has on them and their families. How did you manage to overcome those, that period though, when you were getting a divorce and it was hard to to work? How did you support yourself?
1: Very creatively, I did, I worked as a nanny. Um, for, for, uh, on, uh, late at night, you know, to try to take extra, uh, hours, you know, and, and generate some revenues for myself. I did all kinds of odd jobs. In addition to, uh, doing work as a lawyer during the day for a limited amount of hours, I tried to supplement, uh, what, what I could, uh, could do. Uh, earning um, additional sources of of income. I've never felt any job was beneath me. Um, I've always thought, well, you know, it's a job and it's an honest job. It's an honest way to earn a living and I was going to
0: embrace it. I so think that's a very female mentality and it's a wonderful mentality. Don't you think? Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of men Mm -hmm. would say that, you know, no job is beneath me. I find that w- during the recession, a lot of women We're able to find work quicker than men after getting laid off. Uh, maybe not the best jobs, maybe not the jobs of equal pay or equal stature, but for women, and I've had conversations with my, you know, girlfriends that, um, we feel very strongly that at the end of the day, if we have to afford a life for our families, we will do whatever it takes. And it's okay if we have law degrees and business degrees, we'll, you know, we'll house clean, we'll babysit, we'll work in, (laughs) we'll work at Starbucks like, we'll make minimum wage and three other jobs, whatever it takes. And I find that's a resiliency that's very special to women. Yeah. Um, you know, we're whole brain thinkers, Fanoosh. So with that in mind, the outcome
1: of how we embrace challenges is very different. You know, our ego, we, we don't, our ego is easier to deal with. We're not just a strong fueled And Therefore, I think it gives us a a much better perspective of things and to say, you know what, this is the solution and I'm going to uh, I'm going to be successful in this solution. It may not be my long term objective, but this is a short term remedy that I'm going to embrace uh, until I can get to the next step.
0: Cynthia, what's something that you do habitually with your money to make sure that, you know, it's it's growing, that it's in a good place? I wouldn't say I do one thing habitually
1: I think i do I an mean, it's a holistic approach to money um it's it's viewing how the how what the returns are on my money whether it's properly allocated what my long term uh and uh, financial goals are, um, whether my return is, is yielding me in a direction so I can attain those long-term goals, what I'd like to do in terms of a legacy with my money. Um, all of those things go into it. It's not just one thing. I think, I think my approach to money has set me apart. Even in my career, when I worked for so many years in the bulls bracket firms, um, i thought that people had a very very uh myopic view towards money depending on who you spoke to and i was very early on to embrace the term a holistic approach to money because i always felt that that was the the right way to um, to view it
0: Cynthia, thank you so much. This has been an incredible time for me, spending it with you, learning about your past, learning about your take on money. It's so important. And and as much as we've learned in the last 30 minutes, there's so much more to who you are and what you're doing and helping women around the the world, really. I mean, your story is so inspiring. So, I encourage listeners, please, you know, follow up and learn more about Cynthia. Be inspired. I I didn't get a chance to ask you our so money fill in the blanks, but maybe how about just this one? What's one thing that you spend your money on that makes your life easier or better?
1: Ah, uh, it's it's um, philanthropic. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say spend it's 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 putting into philanthropic uh, endeavors. So, donating. Uh, not various, yeah, various nonprofit uh, endeavors. Some of them very well-recognized and some of them not so, but all of them have a res- the very results-oriented nonprofits that I just feel good about.
0: And lastly, when's the wedding? You know, I uh, have about another year
1: and a half until I reach that five-year mark. Because, uh, I had a reoccurrence of my head and neck cancer in 2000, in 2012, which was, um, really a shock in September of 2012. And, uh, now I'm counting down another five, five years. And, um, it's, my fiance and I have agreed that when I hit that five-year mark, it's going to be an enormous celebration of the wedding and uh, my five-year mark with with cancer, being cancer-free.
0: Yes. Well, we are all praying for you and wishing you and your fiance a glorious wedding. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. It's a pleasure to speak to you. Likewise, Cynthia. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your year. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Cynthia, her firm's website is tigressfp.com, and they're on Twitter at tigressfp. All this information, including the transcript, the audio, and comments from this episode and all previous episodes are at SoMoneyPodcast.com for free. And I really hope to hear from you after you watch tonight's episode of Follow the Leader. We're launching with John Paul DeJoria, who is the founder and CEO of John Paul Mitchell Systems. And also, did you know, fun fact, he owns Patron Tequila for all you margarita fans out there. I'm going to be having a margarita tonight watching the episode. I also want to say that I'll be on Twitter live during the hour. So if you have any questions, that's a great time to reach me. I'll also probably stay on for another hour on Twitter, maybe even Periscope. I don't know. Things might get crazy tonight. So all to say, put on your seatbelts, get on CNBC tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern, get on Twitter. Let's connect. Let's watch. Let's engage. And let's have fun. And let's be so money.